Now, guys, take your Bibles and open them to uh, Hebrews 11. Uh, as most of you know, we're in a book study of the book of Hebrews, but we are, um, we're kind of stuck in uh, chapter 11, uh, stuck gladly in chapter 11. Uh, it's a famous chapter. It's called the Hall of Fame of Faith, and uh, it is a brief review of Old Testament stories, but it's also uh, the author's way of establishing 1038, that the just shall live by faith. So that's what all this goings-on in Hebrews 11 is about. It's really a commentary on 1038, the just shall live by faith. Now, we're going to get to that in just a second. I'll read you my text in, in a moment, but I need to tell you something. This thing that's coming up this weekend, this gospel sexuality, and, uh, and the thing that happens Thursday night even for uh, high school, college age, anybody. I mean, if you want to come, come. It's in back there in the refuge. And... But guys, um, you know, um, it, uh, I think we think of porn as a male problem. It is not only a male problem. Uh, I was made aware of this uh, very key distinction uh, real dramatically of late. You folks that have um, only girls as your children or girls as your granddaughters, if you think for one second it's only your grandsons or your sons that are going to be affected by this uh, scourge. You are sadly mistaken. Um, if you have girls or guys, granddaughters or grandsons, get yourself in here. Uh, it's the new frontier, gospel sexuality. You know it. You already know that. And you're going to sit home and watch some more basketball? Um, haven't you been bloated? Get gang. It's free, for heaven's sakes. We'll even take care of your kids if you'll register. You can't bring them if you don't register. But you've got to be it's a, You've got to be a part of this. It is trying to help us as, as the people of God prepare for all of the battles that take place and are going to take place. Uh, I mean, it's same-sex yesterday, transgender today. What is it tomorrow? Who knows? But hear me say, pornography is not an exclusively male problem. I hope you believe me. If you could be a fly on the wall in my office, you would believe me. And you would cancel whatever you have to cancel to be here this coming Friday night. And if you want to come Thursday, uh, that's kind of an add-on for the, um, the high school and the college. You're welcome there, too. But Friday night, Saturday morning, it's a small price to pay. And you have to pay nothing, actually, at least in terms of money. Don't miss this. All right. Hebrews chapter 11, um, beginning at verse 17. Let me read you three verses out of um, Hebrews chapter 11. They read like this. 
By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, this text is referring to a story in Genesis 22. If you'll turn there real quick, I'm going to read two verses out of Genesis 22. The story to which the author of Hebrews is referring is found in Genesis 22. Most of you know this story. I'm only going to read two verses. Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, this word, this endures forever. Guys, um, the story about Abraham, alluded to in Hebrews 11, this story, the story of Abraham's life begins in chapter 12 of the book of Genesis. I just read you from Genesis 22. So that means there's 10 chapters in there uh, in between 12 and 22. And a lot has happened in those 10 chapters. Um, Genesis 13 is where uh, Abraham and Lot, his nephew, argued. Do you remember that? Over the territory, over the land. And so uh, Abraham says, you go left, I'll go right. You go right, I'll go left. That happens in 13. In chapter 14, Abraham leads a small army into battle to rescue his nephew Lot, who had been captured. And on his way back from that uh, is when he meets Melchizedek. Chapter 15 is where the covenant is instituted by God with Abraham. And God walks through those pieces of the animals. Remember that? Chapter 16 um, is this ugly spat between Abraham's two wives, Hagar and Sarah. Chapter 17, Abraham is given the sign of the covenant, circumcision. <clears throat> chapter 18, excuse me. Chapter 18 is where those three mysterious guests show up and um, discuss with Abraham the destruction of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. Chapter 20 is where Abraham lies to Abimelech about his wife and calls her his sister. Remember that? And then in chapter 21, you get the miraculous birth of Isaac, which brings us to chapter 22 of Genesis. And chapter 22 opens with these words, after these things, 
Well, what things? Well, those things, those things I just told you. After all of those things, this happens. Now, guys, there's a lesson there um, that, that I wanted to mention before we move to the major part of the story. Um, Abraham is about 105 years old when, uh, when this event in Genesis 22 happens. So he's been walking with God for about 30 years. Um, and you know, um, it, it, it appears to suggest that as I mature as a believer, more is asked of me, not less. Guys, my last battle, death, may just be my hardest one. But here's what I want you to see. Those things happen after these things. God is going to prepare you for that battle which is so big. All of those things that I mentioned prior to chapter 22, God is preparing Abraham for this one. Remember the story about David um, when he was being interviewed by Saul about Goliath? And uh, David says, I'm ready to take on Goliath. I'll take him on. Uh, and, and, and Saul says, well, you're just such a kid. And he says, oh, God has allowed me to slay a lion and a bear. He's, you see, Saul, God has prepared me for this big battle by giving me some victory in some little battles. But ladies and gentlemen, the longer we walk with this God, for many of us, the, uh, the challenges won't get less. They'll get greater. But don't forget this. They always come after these things. After those other things. That God used to prepare us for that. Now, that's one of the lessons in the text, I think. But let's get back to this test. Yo, boy. Um, it um, has prompted some to ask, I mean, what kind of God is this that does things like this? Um, let me start answering that by suggesting this to you first. Guys, this text should not be read. I mean, when, when you read Genesis 22, it, it, it shouldn't be read like this. God tested Abraham. It shouldn't be read like that. Here's how it should be read. God tested Abraham. Guys, um, this story in Genesis 22 is, uh, is a revelation to Abraham. It's not a revelation of so much, a, well, it's a revelation about God. It, it is not God looking for information. God is giving information. He's giving information to Abraham. He's not trying to find out something that he doesn't know about Abraham. No, no, no. He's, he's letting Abraham know things about himself. Gang, um, eventually, 
I hate to tell you this, but I think it's true. Eventually, we're all going to get tested like this. Maybe not in the same specifics about, you know, a child and all that. But in terms of severity, we're all going to get tested like this. And let me tell you why. Because ultimately, guys, this is a test about one's ultimate allegiance. The story about Abraham and Isaac and offering him Mount Moriah and all that, it's a story about one's ultimate allegiance. You'll notice, I, I hope, that God didn't ask for his money. I mean, Abraham would have emptied his checkbook. God didn't ask for um, his flocks and his herds. God could have had them all. He asked for his son. His only son. Only son? Well, the other son, Ishmael, he's gone. Um, he, he, he was sent away in chapter 21. So you see, if Isaac dies, um, what does that say about these promises that are mentioned in, in uh, Hebrews eleven seventeen? And he who had received the promises... I mean, if, if, um, if, if Isaac is gone, what, what about those promises? Because you see, Isaac is one of a kind. Um, Isaac is the only heir to all those covenant promises. Now, doesn't this event in Genesis 22 contradict those promises? Um, and, and I want you to notice that God doesn't ask Abraham to send him away like he sent Ishmael away. He asks him to kill him. And by the way, it is not a responsibility that he can slough off on the servants. He's got to do it himself. Because you see, ladies and gentlemen, this story is a story about one's ultimate allegiance. You know, um, as much as you may want to emotionally recoil from this story or, or viscerally revolt, let me, let me try to refocus your attention. <laughs> this is not a story about a child dying or parental cruelty. The thing that I think makes you the most uncomfortable is that you really get the message here. Because the message is about ultimate allegiance. It's about ultimate allegiance. And sometimes we don't do real good with the answer to that question. What is our ultimate allegiance? And the thing that so bothers us about this story is that our ultimate allegiances get exposed. Gang, just like with Abraham, God is not looking for information. He's trying to give it. 
and the information that he's trying to give you, us, is information concerning our ultimate allegiance. That, ladies and gentlemen, is why this story is so uncomfortable. But I would say this. This story is far bigger than even that. Gang, um, the real story is about the promise. Promise is mentioned in Hebrews 11. What promise? Well, the promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Remember that one? The first time we get an inkling of the gospel is in Genesis 3, 15, where the text says the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. Remember that? Well, ladies and gentlemen, Isaac is that seed. To the extent that Jesus Christ is bound up in the loins of that boy, Isaac, Isaac is that seed. Well, doesn't that somehow then contradict that promise? Well, it it does, at least up front. In the beginning, it seems to. And by the way, uh, let me add this just as, (laughs) as a warning. In these situations in which we find ourselves that are so extreme and so severe, that Satan does not create, but he does take advantage of them. And I can promise you that Satan whispered into the the ears of Abraham, isn't your God being awfully inconsistent here? Just like he will whisper into your ears. Isn't your God being inconsistent in asking you that? And, and I don't, you know, who knows what Abraham would have said to Sarah when he got home and said, Oh, honey, I just slaughtered our son. How, how, is, how does Abraham pull this off? Well, Hebrews 11 tells us. He pulls it off by faith. Um, did you see it? It's in Hebrews 11. Um, it's verse 19. He, that is Abraham, considered that God was, evil, was able even to raise him from the dead. Do you see the specific of Abraham's faith? It has to do with Resurrection. And, by the way, it's in this story in Genesis 22. It's in verse 5, where Abraham says to his servants, he says, now listen, pardon me, my my son and I, we're going to go over there, and we're going to worship, and then we're going to come back to you. We're going to go over there, and I'm going to kill him. He didn't say this. (laughs) But then we're going to come back. Because Abraham believes in something that he had never seen before, a resurrection. <clears throat> then where did he get that idea? There, there is a sense in which he has seen a resurrection. He saw it in his own body. Remember, um, he was 99 years old when he impregnated his wife, Sarah, who was 90. 
he saw death come to life in his own body. But how does Abraham pull this whole thing off? He pulls it off by faith. Now, guys, this is how faith is supposed to reason. You ought to listen to this. This is how faith is supposed to reason. Number one, what do I know that God said? Number two, what do I know about the character of God? Number three, has he issued a command? Because at this point, obedience on the part of Abraham is his only option. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is faith at work. Let me apply that uh, to a very current cultural fight. I use this one knowingly because I want you to be here this weekend. Let's talk about same-sex attraction. Let's, let's say that I am one who um, has deep longings for members of my same gender. Okay. It's a very real, powerful temptation. And where it came from, I don't know. Maybe it was genetic loading. Maybe it was environmental circumstances. I don't know where it came from. All I know is that I have this deep longing. So here's what I got to do. What did God say? What do I know about the character of God? And has he issued a command? Because no matter what my longing may be, if I discover that he has commanded otherwise, I have no other option but to obey. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how faith works. Faith is the righteous reflex to revelation. I've been saying that through this whole series. Did you get it? Faith is the righteous reflex to revelation. Gang, I, I, I didn't say it was easy. But what I am trying to teach you is that at one level, this story in Genesis 22 is, is trying to teach us how faith works. That's another one of the lessons of this thing. But now, let's go down another layer. I've told you in the past that truth is layered. Let's go down another level, and we're going to find that this story in Genesis 22 is really about Christ. How? Gang, in the New Testament, um, in John chapter 8, verse 56, Jesus makes this statement. He says this, Abraham saw my day, says Jesus, and he rejoiced and was glad. 
Okay, when? How? Where? Where, 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 where did Abraham see Jesus' day uh, for heaven's sakes? Ladies and gentlemen, he saw it here. In Genesis 22, that's where he saw it. Gang, if Christ is seen anywhere in the Old Testament, he is seen on the top of the Mount Moriah. On that mount, Abraham gets to see a father do to his only son what he didn't have to do to his only son. Abraham's son was spared, you know, by the ram in the thicket. Remember? Abraham's son was spared. God's son was not. Isaac had wood strapped to his back and he climbed up Mount Moriah. So did Jesus. And they both went up there willingly. But you see, a substitute was found for Isaac. No such substitute was found for Christ. Isaac was a substitute that was never substituted. Christ was a substitute that was substituted. Christ was the lamb that was caught in the thicket. You you see, guys, in, in both of these stories, Genesis 22, the one... And the day that Abraham saw, in both of those stories, there is a father willing to sacrifice his son and a son willing to be sacrificed. But only in one of these stories. Was a son really sacrificed? And only in one of these stories does a father have to provide his only son. In this story in Genesis 22, after this whole thing has unfolded and God has stopped Abraham from slaying Isaac, God says this, this is in verse 12. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Ladies and gentlemen, having seen Jesus' day, Abraham could say, Abraham could say to God, God, Now I know you love me because you have not withheld your only son from me. Now guys, there's one more lesson. But if you're going to get it, you're going to have to work for it. So you need to wake up 
you to stay with me. Gang, you notice that in this Genesis 22 passage, Abraham is instructed to go to the land of Moriah and on one of the hills. So, so you see, it's a, it's a region. It's not, a, it's not a, a pinpoint. It's a region. Go to the land of Moriah. Later on in the, in the Old Testament, we discover that, um, that this land of Moriah, which was kind of a hilltop area, is the same area where David built his city called Zion, the city of David, Jerusalem. In this same little hilly area is where David built Jerusalem, city of David, Zion. It is traditionally thought that the peak, <coughs> pardon me, uh, the peak of Mount Moriah um, is called the rock. And that rock is now visible inside the dome of the rock in Jerusalem. The golden dome. You know that when you're looking at pictures of Jerusalem, the first thing that you see is this building with this, this gold roof. That's called the Dome of the Rock, which is now controlled by the Muslims, and the Muslims won't let you in there anymore because they suggest that that's the rock from which Muhammad left earth and went to heaven. They also call it the rock on which Abraham slew Ishmael, not Isaac. Just as an aside, on my first trip to Israel in 1997, we did get inside that building. And I touched the rock. They won't let you in there anymore. Now, see if you can find, real quick, Second Chronicles chapter 3. It's worth the look. Second Chronicles chapter 3. You there? I'm going to read you one verse. Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Then Solomon, David's son, began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Look at there. On Mount Moriah. Where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. That story about David and the threshing site is found in 2 Samuel 30, uh, 24. But the point is, ladies and gentlemen, when Solomon built the temple, he built it on one of the hilltops in the land of Moriah. And it is traditionally thought that the room that is known as the holiest of the holies, you know how the, the temple was architected or designed, there was the holy place and there was the holiest. 
it is traditionally thought that the holiest of the holies was built on top of that rock. Now, you still with me? Because <laughs> it gets better. That whole area was destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonian army, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army. But that same area once again comes into prominence when Herod rebuilds the temple. It's called the second temple. On the same spot. Now, if you haven't connected all those dots just yet, let me, let me connect some of them for you. The place that Abraham took Isaac and the place where the temple, you know the temple, where, where God dwells and where sacrifices for sin are made. On that same spot, Solomon builds his temple that is destroyed, wiped clean. Then Herod rebuilds it. The place where God dwells and where sacrifices for sin are made. Of course, it is destroyed in 70 AD, but that's way after Christ. But right outside that temple, real close to it, is where Jesus Christ was crucified. Now, go back to Genesis 22. Verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. You've heard the name Jehovah Jireh. That's where it comes from right there. That's the Hebrew, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. That's what it says. Read on. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The same place that Abraham took his son Isaac. where the temple was built and then rebuilt, the place where God dwells and sacrifices for sin are offered, is the place that Jesus Christ was crucified. The text says, on the mount of the Lord, It shall be provided.
That promise that you find in Genesis 22, 14 was fulfilled when God took his only son, strapped wood to his back, marched him up the hill of Moriah and no other substitute was found because the only substitute that could pay for the sin of people as wicked as we are was the death of his son. Ladies and gentlemen, the richness of the gospel on display for you, not by me, but by the story of Abraham and Isaac and the promise made and the promise ultimately kept. And so we can stand and look at the Father, and we can say, now I know, Father. Now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, from me. Is that son your savior? Our Father, I, I do pray that the glory and the beauty of the gospel that shines so brilliantly out of this story will be seen by every person in the room that they will not be able to walk out of here with a heart unmoved not by my sermon, Lord, but by the beauty of your promises made and your promises kept. What a faithful God you are. And it's a good thing you are, Father, because the rest of us in this room are not. As for our ultimate allegiances, they are pathetic compared to the one that we're supposed to have. That we might love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our minds, with all our strength. Would you allow the beauty of the gospel to move us closer to the place where we could say that in truth? Lord, if you've led people here this morning who have not yet met our Savior, would you allow their eyes to see the great beauty of Christ crucified now? Do it, Father, for Jesus' sake. We ask it, of course, in his name.